0: I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. As the damage of the coronavirus pandemic worsens here in Southeast Michigan, companies both large and small are finding ways to help. Many have had to close their doors to workers and customers, but they're retooling to meet the needs of medical professionals and everyday people. Today, we want to talk about a few of the ways that these companies are contributing. A little later, we're gonna hear from a nonprofit fashion organization here in Detroit that has switched to making personal protection equipment. And we'll talk with a local distillery that is now making hand sanitizer. But first, we wanna start with an update on the largest scale local retooling that is going on right now, which is happening in the auto industry. And joining us now by Skype to discuss what's happening with autos is Paul Eisenstein, the publisher. Of the dot Paul, welcome back to Detroit today.
1: Stephen, it's great to be with you, and uh, especially uh, especially right now. I'm going to ask a favor, by the way. I hope mm-hmm. you don't mind if I blindside you just slightly. Sure. sure. Uh, I have been very quietly working on the launch of a uh, of a charity program, which just got underway. Last night, mm-hmm. and some point before we get off the air, may we talk about this, please? Yeah, we It'll be it's launching it. under the name of Neighbors That Care. So when you ha- when we get through this, if we can wrap up with that, I'd really appreciate it. Sure,
0: absolutely. Um, let's start with the last time you and I talked, which seems forever ago because yeah. time seems to to be have have been slowed. Uh, just immensely. But it really was just last week. Uh, we were talking about car companies pledging to get involved in manufacturing medical equipment and protective gear. Catch yep. us up on, on where we are with that.
1: Well, uh, what I say today may be different from tomorrow and uh, a lot of things have been happening. We, mm-hmm. uh, I believe today we were going to see General Motors start flooding the market with masks Uh, with a goal of producing something like one and a half million a month Mm. Uh, we've already seen ford motor company produce over one million face shields by the beginning of this week and they are running those out at a phenomenal rate Uh, i i'm getting emails constantly from automakers all over the world so in in one form or another we're seeing manufacturers as diverse as mercedes and lamborghini and volvo fiat chrysler toyota Uh, And of course, uh, not only Fiat Chrysler, but the other big three Detroit automakers, General Motors and Ford, who are doing remarkable work. Um, I don't normally jump to praise uh, automakers, but I am impressed with them. Uh, I'm a little sad at how they were handled by the White House, but they deserve massive praise. Mm.
0: So so early on, there was worry that automakers didn't have the precision tools, the digital technology technology or the expertise to pull off something like making ventilators really quickly. Have those Mm -hmm. concerns bared out, or have they been laid to rest?
1: Well, we already are seeing uh, Ford. I, I, I don't know if they have actually turned on. The line yet. I apologize about that. I should have checked before we got on the air, but I know they were getting ready to start rolling out the first respirators, mm-hmm. and General Motors will be probably launching production of ventilators uh, in a, a little more than a week. And and so people understand what some of these devices are. We all have a clear understanding of what masks are. Most importantly, the the uh, medical grade M95 or N95 masks. Which have uh, openings small enough to block these submicroscopic uh, virus particles from getting through into the mouth or nose. Respirators take things the next level. Mm-hmm. They actually are used to help the the first responder breathe. It it feeds air into the mask, uh, and it can be doubly important in certain environments. Uh, And that's what Ford is working on down uh, in their Flat Rock area, Uh, part of that complex uh, they have outside their assembly plant. Uh, Ventilators are used for those victims who are having trouble breathing on their own. And uh, those can continue to keep a person breathing. It forces air into the lungs. I, I have to tell you one very sad bit of news about this so people can understand put this into perspective. Uh, I was talking with some senior folks in the emergency response uh, community here in Michigan just this weekend, and only about 40 percent of those who do go onto ventilators will survive. Hmm.
0: Wow. Wow. I mean, that's a really grim statistic. Uh, I I, want to ask you a little about the relationship between GM and the White House, which has played out a little differently than it has for other automakers over the last week or so. Uh, and today, just as GM is announcing that it's going to start building these these ventilators, there's a column from the White House that doesn't mention them at all. We also saw Donald Trump take some shots at Mary Barra, the CEO of GM, I think a week ago. Uh, tell us what that's all about.
1: It's it's stunning. I, I you know I, I I keep seeing friends on Facebook and elsewhere post we have to come together we have to deal with this as a nonpartisan situation and yet in the in the five o'clock follies uh, the, the daily propaganda report and that's all they are uh, we see things that are purely purely partisan and we see uh, the the president take shots at people he uh, doesn't like or those who will help him build his own brand. And we've seen that in the way of General Motors. I, I, I'm flabbergasted and appalled by this, uh, which is why I'm speaking out so so aggressively right now. Uh, Mary Barra was supposed to be one of his favorites. She was part of that original Economic Council, which quickly mm-hmm. dissolved, if you remember, in mm-hmm. 17. Uh, and what has happened uh, is that the president saw the two Detroit automakers, Ford and GM, very quickly step up when people were hitting him for not having done enough to get uh, get medical equipment. He appeared to take the chance of blaming them as if it was their fault, not the White House's fault. Uh, but he also personally attacked Mary Barra, uh, as he does many Powerful women. He took some very harsh shots at her personally, which was just to me uncalled for. Uh, He then a day later made uh, good comments about both manufacturers and their efforts, but he insisted inserted his name to make it sound like everything that they were planning to do was done because he ordered them to. And that was not the case. Mm. Both automakers stepped in voluntarily and were doing things before he did any step to reach out to corporate America to start stepping in. Uh, They deserve praise, not the treatment they've gotten from the president and the White House. Mm.
0: My guest is Paul Eisenstein. He's the publisher of thedetroitbureau.com. We're talking about automakers repurposing manufacturing power to manufacture critical equipment to help fight coronavirus, where they are in that effort, and how soon people may find relief from those efforts. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. To what do you make of the auto industry retooling to help build medical equipment and supplies? We especially want to hear from you if you work in either the auto industry or the medical Profession? What are you seeing on the front lines of this? What does it all look like on the ground? What does it look like to to retool an auto plant in a way that would uh, build uh, medical equipment instead of cars or car parts? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019 That's 313-577-1019 You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Paul, um, uh, explain for listeners what the Defense Production Act means in a situation like this and how it's being used here.
1: <clears throat> well, it, it's interesting. This this is an act which basically allows the president to step in and order manufacturers to work for the national defense. And that's a broad term. Uh, you know, it, it, Prior to this, we probably would have thought it meant stepping in and ordering manufacturers to produce guns, grenades, and tanks mm. Uh, more in line with what was done during World War II, mm-hmm. uh, it does give him the opportunity to step in and order manufacturing of medical supplies and other things, uh, if if necessary for a national emergency. Uh, curiously, he has come under tremendous fire for not using it with many, if any, uh, industries around the country during the the coronavirus even though uh, there is a massive shortage of, of componentry of, of medical gear from masks to ventilators uh, and the only time that he stepped in was when he wanted to make it look like he was forcing General Motors to produce ventilators mm. uh, they were already doing it they were already in the process of but he invoked it so that he could say that he did it. He has not taken the step of reaching out to companies like Boeing and others who could also be coming in and stepping up their work very quickly. Uh, so uh, it remains a question. Why hasn't the president done more, reached out to more industries, particularly some of those who are going to be getting billions of dollars in aid under this, this uh, pandemic relief bill, which he has now essentially hijacked, by firing the inspector general that right. was supposed to make sure that the money was doled out correctly. Yeah.
0: I, I want to read a quote from Debbie Dingell, who uh, represents Michigan in Congress, a, a part of the Detroit area in Congress. She she tweeted just before the show uh, that she said, right now we're seeing the effects of decades of policies that incentivized offshoring at the cost of domestic manufacturing. Our supply chains are so dependent on other countries that we don't have the ability to respond rapidly in a time of crisis. I, I wonder if you, what you make of that assessment, and how that fits into the conversation about what the auto companies are doing right now.
1: Well, you know that's a very interesting point, Stephen. Uh, I, I think coming out of this, well, at least I hope coming out of this, we'll be able to have a national discussion that looks at a lot of the fundamental issues that face the country, including our manufacturing base and our national defense base beyond just, as I said, guns, grenades, and tanks. Uh, we also have to be dealing with medical supplies and so on. And and the reality is it's not a partisan debate. It shouldn't be because some of the issues cross the line. Uh, we've had strong democratic support in many circles for expanding our our manufacturing base to to become more globalized. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to look at it and say, are there some things that we should make sure we don't offshore entirely to China or Vietnam or even even Germany or other uh, high-end manufacturing nations? We have to be looking at it more holistically as protecting ourselves but also recognize the fact that this is a global world. And if we shut our doors, our products aren't going to be sold in those countries. either.
0: right. I also wonder what you make of the industry itself. Uh, Part of the restrictive orders that are in place either limit or completely eliminate, depending on which state you're in, uh, auto sales. And so the idea of making any money at all, uh, it goes out the window for for these companies at this time. Is that is that something that we should be looking at? What the permanent damage from that could be, or is that just kind of a freezing of commerce? And we'll see that return to where it was before this happens uh, uh, after we're all all through it.
1: I, you know, the, I, I hear the phrase a lot. Uh, nobody knows. Nobody really knows what the impact of this will be on a- any aspect of American life. Mm-hmm. And and automotive retailing is one of them. Uh, we have a number of states that have completely shut down, are not allowing any sort of automotive retailing last week according to uh lmc automotive a, a consulting firm detroit auto sales went down essentially 100 percent stopped it stopped in a number of states though uh in some states they're still you're still allowed to go to a a, a dealership And yet others are doing things like online retailing or phone retailing Mm -hmm. or delivering vehicles to you uh, in a contactless situation where a person will actually bring to you your vehicle and then scrub it down uh, before you go out and find the keys sitting in the cup holder. Uh, We're going to see a lot of new discussions about how cars will be sold going forward. And I think online retailing uh, is probably going to be one of the things that's going to emerge strong from this. Hmm. In terms of numbers, Stephen, uh, last month saw about a 40% decline in sales US nationwide. Wow. Uh, this month is expected to see at least an 80% decline. And according to J.D. Power and uh, several others, including L.M.C., do not expect auto sales to begin to recover probably until June or even into July. This year could see numbers down at 12.5 million sales wow. compared to 17.1 million last year. Uh, and most people do not expect to see anything close to a true recovery until at least 2021.
0: Wow. So so let's, let's roll with that scenario and assume those numbers – these are companies that just a decade ago were reorganizing under bankruptcy laws or in in Ford's case uh, escaping that by literally hawking everything that they that they owned it, it, does this push them back to those kinds of desperate times if that happens
1: tell me how long this continues that's the real question yeah uh, eventually an industry has to be building things and selling things if you're a manufacturing business. And uh, right now it's uh, it's basically an industry on hold unless you talk about producing a small number of medical devices. Uh, we will, we'll know that soon. But I have to say uh, we are starting to get the sense, those of us who watch this industry closely, that many of the things that the automakers, particularly in Detroit, said they learned from the Great Recession they are putting to use right now. Uh, They are not collapsing the way that they probably would have, Mm -hmm. had had it been business as usual all the way through the Great Recession up till now. So I think that that's a good sign. I think the automakers are gonna come through this a little better than we expected. Perhaps even show many other industries how to survive this level of crisis. Mm.
0: Okay, uh, Paul, you wanted to talk about this charitable effort that you're involved in. Uh, Tell us what it is.
1: Yeah. As, as Stephen, as you know, I live in the small town of Pleasant Ridge. Mm-hmm. Many, many drive through our sign says hello and goodbye. <laughs> uh, it's, it's along Woodward Avenue uh, between Ferndale and Royal Oak. And uh, we have about 5% of our population who are first responders, primarily nurses, doctors, mm-hmm. and related medical personnel. That's a lot. And as you know from reports out of Beaumont and Henry Ford, many of them are getting horribly ill right now. Uh, But even when they're not, they're barely able to get sleep. They're they're working double shifts six and seven days a week. Many of them don't have the chance to shop. They don't have a chance to cook. And we have created a a charity uh, to work with the Pleasant Ridge Foundation. The charity is called Neighbors That Care. And we have been able to work with the Pleasant Ridge Foundation. We're going to be providing food to our first responders, mm. uh, at least a little bit so that they can get a break. They don't have to uh, count on every meal, having uh, maybe not being able to eat or just eating the, the, the sandwich bars that they have in the cupboard. Uh, now, that that's our first step, and we just officially launched that yesterday. And if people want to to donate to that, they can go to the Pleasant Ridge Foundation's uh, website, PleasantRidgeFoundation.org. More importantly, on a broader scale, we have we are taking neighbors that care, and we are launching a nationwide effort to try to encourage communities all over the United States. To reach out, I don't care if you are a city hall, hmm. uh, a, a charitable foundation like ours in Pleasant Ridge, a block club, a Kiwanis club, anything. Find ways to reach out to help your first responders. Buy them food, give them, get them deliveries from the local restaurants, gift cards for the Krogers or what have you. Right. Uh, if you don't have money available, maybe uh, maybe you can help them cut the lawn mow their lawns or or do other services walk the dogs things that they may not be able to do because they're working 16 hours a day at the hospital now our website will be going live probably within the next 24 hours it will be neighbors that com and neighbors that care us.com it's not live at the moment but i wanted to use this moment with you and i appreciate the chance yeah absolutely. we are not we are not asking for money we are purely a site and a charity devoted to guiding people around the country and how to help their first responders in need yeah
0: i mean when we think about the the long term effects of what we're enduring and the things that will take a long time to fix or get back to normal you think of the lives of these first responders i think first as as the initial sort of edge of disruption, that uh, things are just um, catastrophic for them in in so many ways. I mean, that story yesterday about the number of people at Beaumont who are sick, uh, the number of workers at Beaumont who are sick is just, is just staggering. And you think of all that they're doing to try to help us get through this, uh, it does make a lot of sense for us to turn our attention to their needs uh, as well so that's a, a really great effort
1: <laughs> they are the soldiers in the front line of a war we have never faced before i had one friend of mine the other day tell me that they do not think they're going to live through this yeah wow
0: wow okay paul eisenstein publisher of the Detroit bureaucom it's always great to have you here on uh, detroit today i hope you're doing well and taking care
1: I am. And Steven, I'll get you the information as soon as I know we are live with the website.
0: Okay. And we'll put it up on, uh, we'll put it up on our website as well.
1: Thanks for being here.
0: Up next, we're going to take a look at how a local factory made a speedy transition to manufacturing personal protection equipment before even opening their doors to the public. Stay with us on Detroit Today. 1019 WDET,
2: Detroit's NPR station, celebrating 70 years of radio in Detroit.
0: You're listening to Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, I'm glad you have joined us. We're talking this hour about changes in industry and manufacturing that are brought about by the coronavirus pandemic. The need for personal protection equipment and other kinds of uh, machines and supplies has inspired lots of companies to change what they're doing. Instead of making cars or clothes or other issues or other items, they're now making things that we need to fight the pandemic. Uh, Of course, automakers are not the only ones who are repurposing their businesses. Uh, The Industrial Sewing and Innovation Center here in Detroit, which was set to open on April 13th, has temporarily shifted its mission to make personal protection equipment for area hospitals. Here to tell us more about implementing that change before the factory even opened is Jen Garino. She is the CEO and chair of Industrial Sewing and Innovation Center. Jen, welcome to Detroit Today.
3: Thank you so much. Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah. So first, we should let people know that the Detroit Today team met you about a month ago, and things were really different back then. It was like we were in a completely different world, almost. Uh, You were telling us about the mission of the Industrial Sewing and Innovation Center. Let's start there uh, with our listeners. Give us an idea of what you were trying to accomplish a month ago.
3: Thanks for letting us uh, tell you a little bit about our our, our mission that uh, we set out for. and We're hoping to launch a month ago. And hope we'll get back to you after we get around to the other side of this. Um, the Industrial Sewing and Innovation Center, uh, we refer to it as Isaac, is a national institute for the sewn trades. And our main mission is to put people at the front of advanced manufacturing for apparel manufacturing. And what that really means is uh, we have a process and some curriculum by which we teach people traditional skills, but we also prepare them to become digitally literate and to learn um, skills that are going to be required for advanced manufacturing, such as automation and robotics, so that we can really develop career paths for folks in this industry and to put them um, at the, the, the front of the line when it comes to skills that are going to be required to be competitive for domestic manufacturing. We have a learning factory where we um, bring in apprentices every three months. They stay with us for a year. And at the end of that year, they have a journey card that tells them that they have mastered industrial sewing. Hmm. We also uh, stack certifications and credentials so that we can be flexible in how we offer ways to advance careers. A lot of these folks are, you know, um, parents. They work full time. They can't stop you. Uh, go get further education. So, we organize ways that they can pursue mastery without having to stop their lives. Mm. Um, so, we have our location above Cass's, Cass Street's, um, I'm sorry, uh, Carhartt store on top of uh, their la- their flagship store on Cass Street. Um, it's a 12,000 square foot factory and it's, it's gorgeous. Um, it's got skylights. Divided by plans for really trying to show that industry can look, sound, and feel different. And this is all um, related to us being leaders in really changing the way our industry manufactures and distributes product and making sure that when we pursue sustainability in apparel, that we're making sustainable. Sustainability possible for the people first, mm-hmm. and without that, you you don't have sustainability.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was April thirteenth when we, or, or, I'm sorry, March thirteenth when we, yes. when we talked about that, and you were on the verge of opening. Uh, talk about what's happened since then. You guys are doing something very very different now.
3: We are. Uh, you know, we realize that. Uh, given the crisis we're in, that we had a skill and a expertise that really should be redirected away from making fashion goods, and um, use those skills to contribute to um, the real shortage in sewn personal protection equipment, um, better known as PPE. So what we did was we realized that we had a network of folks that were a part of our our growing Isaac team and uh, our I would say our community here in Detroit. And we reached out to the city and the state and some corporate partners to say, let's reach out to all these folks and let's see if we can help them to repurpose to make PPE. And so we are setting up, we will start making gowns on Monday. Uh, this has become a, a hot priority for our healthcare systems here. It started as masks and still is masks, but gowns have become a really important. So we have standardized the style. And we're cutting and kitting and distributing to our manufacturing partners. Um, and then, uh, you know, in addition, we're, we're looking forward. What does this look like in the future so we don't find ourselves here again? Mm-hmm. So thanks to Quicken Loans, um, we have purchased an automated welding machine for masks so that we can produce in high volume um, at a competitive price so that we have a regional source for masks in the future. Yeah. So we're working on both the short term and the long term.
0: And and talk about how this kind of swift retooling to make something really different than what you were thinking about doing just a month ago, how does that affect the the plans that you had just a month ago to to open this center? Does it make it uh, a little more difficult to get things up and running off the ground once this is over or does the energy and the momentum from this kind of carry over into maybe a stronger launch for for what you were planning?
3: Well, I think it's a couple things. One thing is that when you have a crisis, we're all seeing how community comes together. So we believe uh, that the leadership we're practicing right now is going to really serve our mission going forward because we're all getting to know each other really well. we're coming together. and you know, whenever you can do that, that, that's, that's a bond that, that carries forward with you. So we believe that that leadership is going to help carry out our mission. We also think that, you know, a month ago nobody was talking about the, import, the importance of industrial sewing.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: In fact, we would, you know, we were hard, uh, it was hard to convince people that it was a, a, an important you know, career to consider. Mm-hmm. And I think this has certainly changed that. Yeah. Uh, we know that uh, industrial sewing is still a, a critical part to uh, producing products. Yeah. So I think that's also going to help. I think the other thing that we're doing is this is offering ability for us to bring in technology quicker than we originally thought. And I'll, by way of example, uh, the welding uh, machine that we we'll are making masks with, that's also a technology that is becoming more and more prevalent in cut and sew. It's replacing the needle and thread on certain kinds of fabrications. So as we learn how to do that, we're able to prepare our workforce to learn that form of manufacturing, too. So I I think this is going to further um, our mission. Um, We're just doing it on different products. That's the way I think about it. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, My guest is Jen Garino. She's the CEO and chair at Industrial Sewing and Innovation Center. She's the former VP of Manufacturing at Shinola. We're talking about uh, how businesses, small businesses, large businesses are shifting what they do in light of the coronavirus pandemic to help produce some of the supplies and equipment that we need to fight back against the pandemic. Uh, We were talking earlier about the auto industry changing from making cars to making ventilators and respirators. Uh, We're now talking about industrial sewing, going from the idea of making clothes and uh, construction uh, wear and things like that to making things like masks and other personal protection equipment that we need right now in desperate ways. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what you make of all of this kind of transition that's underway. Uh, Also, especially we want to hear from you if you're part of an industry that's doing things differently right now, that is making something different than what you normally make uh, because of the pandemic, because of the need for equipment uh, and supplies. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation. Also, we uh, always want to hear from you right now just about how you're doing. Give us a call and tell us how you're managing through this pandemic, what your life is like uh, now that everyone is really staying at home, or is supposed to be staying at home, staying away from other people, uh, physically isolating ourselves. Uh, give us a give us a sense of what that's like. Also, give us a sense of the disruption in your wor- world of work. So many people right now uh, are either not working uh, or, uh, are not being paid uh, because of the coronavirus pandemic and the huge hit it's had on our economy. We always want to make sure that uh, this hour we spend to de- together every day here on Detroit Today is a chance to connect with one another and talk about the issues, but also just to be able to feel like we are connected because we can't be in the physical world. Again, three one three five seven seven. 1019 is the number in on the phones. Uh, let's start with Ed in Detroit. Ed, welcome to the program. Uh, a timely
2: conversation, as usual. Thank you. Uh, I think it was President Roosevelt who gave Detroit the label, the arsenal of democracy mm-hmm. during World War
1: II, mm-hmm.
2: when businesses, large and small, in Detroit and Michigan, in what seemed like on a dime, repurposed themselves in the first six months or so of 1942 from making consumer goods to making goods for the emergency services of that moment, Mm -hmm. the armed forces, to help fight and win Second World War. And I'm pleased that businesses, large and small, today are repurposing themselves to deal with this current emergency. And in a, in a very important way, it extends the metaphor of the arsenal of democracy to, to our city and our state. Mm. And so uh, the men and women who work in these businesses have every reason to be proud. And I think people in Detroit, Michigan, have every reason to be proud of those men and women. Yeah,
0: uh, I, I absolutely agree with you, Ed, and appreciate the call and the perspective uh, Jen, you know, I wonder, so one of the things that we don't talk a lot about during World War II is that it wasn't just the auto industry that retooled. It was lots of industries, including, I would imagine, industrial sewing back in that day to, to, to try to make equipment. I mean, you guys are, are sort of walking in the shadow of all, uh, of, all of that. And, and the, the echoes, I think, of that time now are, are pretty powerful.
3: They really are, and I think uh, there's there's a lot of analogies uh, to what uh, the color just uh, referred to, and I think uh, you know often sewing is not something that we notice or or honor or pay attention to, but if you if you look around your house, your car, and you look at uh, everything that required a needle and thread, it's it's a fundamental um, form of production that, that's really key. So in times like this. Um, it becomes a really critical part of the supply chain. I think what is um, equally um, bringing, I think, some some level of satisfaction to everybody's working so hard on this is that not only are we, you know, helping the front lines to be protected, but we're also protecting people's jobs and their businesses. So we're able to help people repurpose, so that at a time where most are furloughed or not working, not bringing in a paycheck, uh, they're able to keep their lives going um, by activating their capacity. And um, I would guess that that happened a lot in, uh, you know, in World War II as well. But it, it really has uh, a number of benefits that when you when you catalyze a manufacturing ecosystem, it's powerful.
0: Mm. Yeah. Uh, again, Ed, I really appreciate the call and the perspective there. Let's go to Cindy in Detroit. Cindy, welcome to the show. Yeah. Uh,
4: I was one I've been thinking about this for a while. If you could people could make a full face respirator, which I used to have them with a, a separate little battery you wear on your belt, it's got a filter. The battery pulls the air through the filter up through a hose that goes up to the face mask. Hmm. And then you've got positive air uh, pushing out so you don't suck in air that leaks in. So I, I thought they could have these for the people that are working right with the patients so that the patients would get better care because the, the people are afraid of their own patients. I
5: think.
0: Right, right, I'm
4: working with somebody trying to get decent care, and it's hard. Yeah. So uh, they should have used these. And when they had 9-11, see, a lot of those people got sick, and they, they lost their lives and the lost their health are, for the, the rest people of who were on
0: the, on the cleanup, And they yeah. didn't
4: have, you know, in fact, if the thing I thought they could add to it, if they could put an ultraviolet light on the filter, you could be trying to, to kill the virus before it comes through that hose, if there's any in the air.
0: Yeah. Cindy, so, I appreciate the call uh, and, and that perspective as well. Uh, Jen, you you guys are not making respirators or, or breathers, but uh, it, what Cindy's call reminds me of is kind of the innovation that's evolved uh, around all of this, that uh, that at times like this, sometimes we figure out better ways to do things, more innovative ways to do things. Is that something that you're starting to see or see the possibility for in what you're doing?
3: Absolutely, 100%. Um, you know, a lot of the inquiries we get, are to work with people that are innovating products. And, you know, we right now are so focused on the immediate that we, we, we can't stop to innovate. But fortunately, we're an innovative country, mm-hmm. so there's innovators out there. And so I will tell you that there is all sorts of innovation going on right now. And I think we are going to see um, a much more effective and diverse way we can deal with these kind of issues because the innovation is going to come out of it. I I fully expect to see pretty dramatic innovation in this space.
0: Okay, Jen Garino, CEO and Chair of Industrial Sewing and Innovation Center. It was great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you. Up next, we're going to talk with the co-owner of a local small batch distillery who's going to tell us how he made the switch from spirits to sanitizer to help with COVID-19. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. Jeff in Gross Point, Peter in Farmington Hills, we'll get to you next. You can join them to tell us about what's going on in your world of work, what's changing because of COVID-19, or just to tell us how you're doing surviving this pandemic. 313-577-1019 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more to trick today. Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining. Detroit City Distillery creates small-batch artisanal whiskey, gin, and vodka. And now you can add hand sanitizer to that list. The local distillery is adapting its manufacturing to help meet the immense need for cleaning agents during the coronavirus pandemic. Detroit City Distillery co-owner Michael Forsyth, Joins me now to talk about the transition and how it's going so far, Michael. Welcome to Detroit today.
6: Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah. So, uh, talk about making the move to making hand sanitizer when what you normally make is uh, whiskey and gin and vodka. How do you even? How do you even do that? How do you even undertake that kind of change?
6: Yeah. Well, it's been quite the process. We've been at it for about two weeks. Uh, the city of Detroit police department reached out and asked if we could help. And that kind of instigated the move. And so for us, it's been a real challenge to just try to keep up with the supply chain. Mm -hmm. So alcohol is the main ingredient, which obviously we make Mm -hmm. usually it's bourbon um, this time of year, but um, you know, we've been able to source uh, alcohol It's much faster than making it from scratch per usual. And so, you know, we've been, sourcing bottles, glycerin, hydrogen peroxide, all the kind of key ingredients to make hand sanitizer. And so, uh, it's been a challenge, but we've been able to pivot quickly to help a lot of people. So, it's been good.
0: So, how much of this have you been able to make so far, and who is it going to?
6: Sure. So, uh, we have been able to make, um, we'll have about 7,000 gallons done uh, by the end of the week. And so, we've been We sent 2,000 gallons up to the Michigan State Emergency Operations Center uh, this past Friday, uh, 500 gallons to the city, 175 to the state police, uh, countless other nursing homes, uh, homeless shelters, U.S. postal workers, police departments, fire departments, and other folks on the front line. So we've served about 100 organizations so far. So it's been been good to play a role helping out during the crisis.
0: Yeah. So so talk about your business and how the pandemic is disrupting that business as it is all others in your, in your field, but then how switching to make something else is kind of a different kind of disruption. I mean, uh, talk about how this affects uh, Detroit City Distillery as a going concern.
6: Sure. I mean, you know, it's a hard time to be a small business owner. Uh, But, you know, I think one of the things you sign up for when you are an entrepreneur and start a small business is, you know, you're solving problems every day. And so, you know, for us, you know, we've kind of been called on to, you know, serve on the front lines to help address this crisis and, you know, pivoting for us Uh, you know, really is a no brainer. I mean, it's just kind of in the Detroiters DNA, right? When you are called to help you step up Mm -hmm. and you make a shift and that's the Detroit way, right? You know, it's a city that's, you know, adversity defines character. And so, you know, folks come together to help each other out in times of need. So we've, we've done that, you know, this has been a nice distraction for us, honestly. I mean, we've you know had to lay off about half of our staff. Um, you know, our tasting room and event space is no longer open. We've lost half of our distribution customers in the restaurant world, mm-hmm. but you know this has been able to allow us to you know keep half our staff and pay some bills and uh, do good in the meantime. So it's been a it's been a welcome transition. Yeah. Uh, so it, f- it feels good being able to help.
0: Yeah. We're talking about uh, businesses, both small and large right now, who are retooling what they normally do in order to make equipment and supplies that we need to fight against the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313 577 101.9. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and put comments there and we'll try to work you into the conversation. We want to hear from you if you are involved in one of these efforts to make medical supplies or equipment for the coronavirus pandemic. Also, if you work in the auto industry, give us a call and tell us what that's been like, retooling plants to make equipment instead of car parts or things like that. Let's go to Jeff in Gross Point. Jeff, welcome to the show.
5: Good morning, Stephen. A great show on this arsenal of democracy, while keeping in mind that we are still in a capitalist society. I did the math on that GM deal, and those ventilators look to be coming out over 16000 each. Mm. And as far as the distilleries, I've been looking at this picture on the Gross Point News of Atwater's project, where they pretty much so have $500 worth of product meaning two cases Mm -hmm. on the top, you know, they're selling it pretty much at a dollar an ounce. You get four ounces for $4, Mm. you know, and it just shows the capitalism that's out. I mean, that's pretty steep, that's an ounce.
0: Yeah, I mean. One dollar
5: per ounce. Yeah. Picture a $500 worth of product on top of the paper, just two cases. It's like, wow. Wow. You know, with taxes. Yeah. It's like, hey, you know. Capitalism is still at work. 16, <laughs> Capitalism 000, is
0: alive and well. Right.
5: dollars ventilator and forts making them at seven. dollars They were beginning back in 2008 to try to get the smaller ventilators, bringing them in at 2000 each. We go from 2008 to 2020, and it's 16000
0: Yeah, uh, Jeff, it's a great point, and it's something we ought to be keeping in mind. Michael Forsyth, can you talk some about profit at a time like this and whether this effort is feeding profit for small businesses.
6: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's been, it's tough, right? Because obviously you want to be able to donate this product in the time of need, but you're not really in a position to as a small business, you're losing tens of thousands of dollars every week. You're spending thousands of dollars on hand sanitizer material at the same time. So, you know, we've tried to be really fair. I mean, you know, for hospitals and frontline responders. I mean, you know, if we looked online and the lowest price was $28 before the pandemic. So we're selling it for less than that. Mm. Um, You know, we're, you know, we're not trying to get rich off this. We're just trying to pay some bills and keep those employed. But, you know, certainly, you know, you can see at a time like this that, you know, some components of capitalism just don't really work. Right. And people are taking advantage of the system and, Mm -hmm. you know, privatizing what, you know, people should be focused on for the greater public effort right now. And, you know, everybody's handling it differently and it's moving very fast and, you know, the supply and demand economics are completely out of whack right now. Sure. Um, and, you know, we're just trying to do good at this point, you know, um, we are, you know, being able to pay some bills and keep afloat, and that's kind of been our priority right now. So, you know...
0: I mean, it's it's difficult when, when you know, the normal order of business is that this is a society that, that you know, seeks profit and, and capital moves things to kind of shift and think about the ways in which that doesn't meet people's needs, especially at a time of, of crisis. And I think... The the imperative here is for all of us to be thinking about what happens when we get back to quote unquote normal. Do we right. do we learn from things that didn't work as capitalist pursuits, but were able to convince us that we need to do some things just to make sure that uh, that everybody has what they need and, and that people are uh, okay. And and I, I don't believe there's anything wrong with having that conversation and the time to do it. Uh, is is now while everything as you point out is is just kind of turned on its head and the old rules of supply and demand and things like that just just don't make any sense they, they don't work uh uh with with something like this so again jeff i appreciate the call and the comments let's go to peter in farmington hills peter welcome to the show
7: hi thanks for being on the air
0: sure go ahead
7: uh, yeah. Uh, our industry is retooling significantly. I'm a, uh, uh internal medicine physician who is not on the front lines. Mm-hmm. And uh, we still have a lot of patients out there who have regular diseases who need care. And our doors are not open. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't risk their health by having them come in right now if they have diabetes and heart disease and they get each other sick. Uh, uh, then they're moving to the front line. And we have very rapidly retooled uh, to provide telemedicine, and this has required a uh, uh, a dramatic shift in regulatory and payment structures. That sure. we have no idea if it's going to actually work or not.
0: Yeah, uh, how does that how is that working the telemedicine side of it, and you know, seeing patients through a computer screen rather than seeing them in in an examining room.
7: You know, it, it's it's really interesting. A lot of what we do is brain work, and uh, a lot of the time we can simply talk to patients, ask them how they're feeling, go over, you know, their blood sugar numbers or their blood pressures if they check them at home and, and help them through things that way. But, uh, you know, we run into a lot of hurdles. Uh, a lot of our patients are older and might not have the uh, technology either because of uh, cost or because they're just not... Uh, up-to-date technologically like younger people. Mm. So uh, it, it, it can be a bit of a challenge to reach them. And then, uh, you know, the regulatory structure is very complicated. You, Until about two weeks ago, we really weren't allowed to provide telemedicine in any real way. Oh, really? uh, So we really had to learn very, very quickly.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, Peter, uh, good luck, and we absolutely appreciate the work that you're doing. Uh, as you say, away from the front lines where people still have – very important and sometimes urgent medical needs. Uh, good luck to you and and take care. Okay, Michael Forsyth, co-owner of Detroit City Distillery. It was great to have you here as well to talk about uh, what's going on with you. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Stephen. All right, come back tomorrow when we're going to have a conversation with a familiar face and voice, Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha the physician who led the crusade for Flint children who were poisoned by the water switch there, is going to join us to talk about her journey through the coronavirus pandemic. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.